1: Welcome to a special live 2 p.m. edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We decided we should do the show live uh, this afternoon uh, because we're still all kind of crunching numbers to look at how the uh, voting went over the course of the runoff election, both early in-person absentee voting and um, uh, the people who voted on uh, Election Day Yesterday, And in a minute, I'm going to introduce the panel, but let me very quickly give you a few numbers that I think might at least begin framing the conversation that we'll have. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so about 3.5 million Georgians turned out to vote uh, in the runoff election altogether. That's down about 400,000 from the number of people who voted in the general election. Uh, Warnock won this race uh, with about 95-plus thousand more votes than Herschel Walker. That's a significant increase over his margin uh, that led to the runoff, where he was ahead of Walker by just 38,000 uh, votes. Um, about 1.6 million people uh, voted in person yesterday yesterday. And as we have always said, Republicans vote on Election Day. 57% of the people who voted yesterday did, in fact, support Walker. But a higher number of voters, almost 1.9 million, voted early or by absentee ballot, and 58% of them went for Raphael Warnock. So, what that means is you could tell that going into Election Day, Republicans had a lot of ground to make up if they were going to catch Raphael Warnock. And, of course, Uh, They were not able to do that. So those are just a few numbers. There are more that I'd like to share and have the panel weigh in on. So let me just get right to it and introduce uh, the panel. Uh, We're joined by two of our GPB News All-Stars, Riley Bunch, public policy reporter for GPB News, and Donna Lowry, who, of course, hosts Lawmakers at GPB. We're also joined by Tia Mitchell from the Atlanta General Constitution, who, like most of us, hasn't really slept and is continuing to try to keep up the pace of doing programs like ours on this day after the election. And Renee Alegria, CEO of Mundo now is back with us. Let me very quickly, Riley, start with you because you were at Raphael. I mean at Herschel Walker's of party last evening. Give us a little sense of how that evening unfolded. It must have been a, a sad event by the end of the night.
2: Well, it was definitely fitting to be held in the College Football Hall of Fame in downtown Atlanta. We were all on the green turf down there. And it was a very subdued party. I would say the crowd that was trickling in wasn't super optimistic. Um, there were, and as you mentioned earlier, Bill, about the numbers, it was interesting to see both come in this year because it really kind of pushed one person over the lead and then pushed the next person over the lead and back and forth and back and forth. And, you know, the crowd would cheer when Herschel Walker came up and then slowly, slowly started to realize the reality of what was going on. You know, Herschel Walker came out around 11 p.m., I would say, I think it was, and um, give a very, very short speech. So it, it wasn't, a, I wouldn't say, a, a fun night for the Herschel Walker camp
1: there. Tia Mitchell, of course, uh, you are the Washington reporter for the AJC, and I think it's fair to say that although, although everyone knew this was going to be a very tight race, um, for over the past five or six days, there was an increasing kind of sense that this was just moving to Raphael Warnock. It wasn't based on data. It was just fa- based on a certain sense of momentum, energy in the Warnock campaign that seemed to be lacking in the Walker campaign. So I think people sort of thought this was going to be Warnock's night, but boy, it was close.
3: Yeah, and I think you know there were some data points, like like you mentioned, there weren't a whole lot of data. But, like, the polls, just about every poll showed Warnock slightly ahead. Um, Fundraising, a fundraising report came out um, a week or so ago, and Warnock had Mm -hmm. raised substantially more money than Herschel Walker. And then, like you said, the momentum. You know, for a while, Herschel Walker's campaign seemed to kind of peter out, where he spent both of the final two weekends of the runoff basically off the trail um, so there were all these, you know, little indications that, like, Warnock was coming in strong and Herschel Walker. His campaign seemed to kind of be floundering a little bit, and people couldn't really figure out what his strategy was if he had a strategy to win other than speak to my base and hope for the best on Election Day.
1: Yeah, Um Thank you for that. So here's what I want to do now. Uh, I would like to give each of you an opportunity to just share your thoughts. What did you make of how this election unfolded over the course of the runoff, if you want to do it that way? Just what you saw happening as people were out voting yesterday and what you see as the reasons that Raphael Warnock was able to win this race. Donna, let me start with you and we'll give everybody a chance.
0: Well, I'm going to just start with that giant sigh of relief, not just from Democrats, but members of the press, from everybody nationwide. When news outlets like AP finally called the race yesterday, I think we all thought we were in for days of indecision with the numbers going back and forth and during the night. I listened to a few of the press conferences by the Secretary of State's office. And, and my big takeaway take is that despite what many of us thought was this voter fatigue in Georgia, we, you know, it's elections, elections, elections. That's always we seem to be dealing with. It seems quite the opposite, that there wasn't the fatigue that we thought may have been out there. The number of people who voted in the runoff is just staggering to me. The fact that yesterday proved to be a record-breaking day for a runoff, just amazes me. It was horrible. It was a horrible day. It was rainy. It was dreary. I heard several people call it a Netflix day where you just stay home and watch television. But people went to the polls, 1.6 million voters. I mean, it's astounding. And that is um, apparently, according to the secretary of state's office, it's more than uh, than we saw on uh, January 5th that we saw and, um in on November of 2020 on election day, that's incredible. Um, that it during early voting, I, you know, we know that many were so determined that they stood in line for more than an hour. I actually know somebody who stood in line for 90 minutes who has serious health issues but was determined to stay in line. So it was the sheer determination to vote by so many people in this state that I'll remember about it all. And, and the, the early numbers show that Warnock even improved on Biden's margins in some of those metro Atlanta suburbs. So I think that whole, the whole voting thing was a big deal. Um, and I do believe that part of the voting action may have been spurred on by the fact that the rest of the country was watching. Um, people were probably getting texts like I did from all over the country asking about the election and our Senate race and, and that led newscasts, as you know, for days. So I think that part of it, um, part of the whole picture here is that Georgians are in this mode to vote now.
4: Renee? Uh, you know, just just to, to echo that, I, I feel like, uh, you know, peanuts, peaches, hip hop and, and civic participation – are what georgia is going to be known for going forward and we have to be proud of that you know i mean we're such a smart electorate now and we're embedding our kids the next generation with an understanding of how the process works um uh, it, it, and and we're you know we're, we're seeing that play out, and so it's it's really exciting to be a part of this. I, there was a there was a quote of somebody, a, a pundit on on one of the the news shows last night that you know exclaimed Georgia is the center of the political universe, and while that seemed dramatic, you know you just kind of feel it sometimes. So you have this like sense of duty to be a part of that, and 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 vote, and just get out and vote, and so. I, I think that's just a, a huge plus for wh- whatever side you're on. It's just it's good for the state. It's good for the people of Georgia. You know, um, the future of how Georgia is seen as that pivotal kind of uh, electorate, uh, you know, bellwether, if you will, going forward is going to be very interesting, and 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 how that plays out in 2024 and beyond. Um, as as for the race, um, you know, just this the midterms in general. You know, I, th- there's that uh, that that funny quote, not funny quote, but that quote by by Churchill that this is not the end, but perhaps the end of the beginning. Right. And so I feel like we're at the start of something that's truly transformational uh, that this country is undergoing, you know, this this demographic shift that is embodied so so perfectly by by Georgia's uh, citizens, you know, the, the coalition of African-American, Latino, Asian, college-educated whites. Um, now, in, in, you throw on a super strong connectivity of purpose with, with Gen Z, you know, and you really have this, like, okay, micro slash macrocosm of what, what is, is truly dynamic in, in, in this country and, and certainly in Georgia politics.
1: Riley and, and Tia, I want to get you in. Uh, Riley, go ahead. General impressions and then Tia, your broader general impressions too.
2: Man, I mean, Renee hit the nail on the head. I feel like Georgia is such a watch state because it tells a lot about where both the parties are going nationally, right? You know, I think the big question that I'm getting, T is getting, all the journalists are getting is what does this mean for the Trump-backed Republicans, right? And I at Herschel Walker's event last night, I went as soon as it was called, got a text from a Republican that just said quality candidates matter. And I think that there's this big question about will this loss by Herschel Walker mean the end of this celebrity status Trump endorsed candidates? And I don't think that's necessarily the case. And I think it's important to remember that in politics, it's a slow churn it's not, we tend to get caught up in these big monumental wins or losses for either party but it's kind of a slow burn but look at what candidates did do well it was Kemp who appealed to more moderate and swing voters and it was Warnock who completely adjusted his strategy to appeal to more moderate and swing voters as well so the candidates that were more extreme they they didn't do as well so i think that's something to watch definitely going forward Tia Yeah, I think kind of building
3: on what um, Riley was saying, one of the things that I found really fascinating was how when Warnock pivoted to the runoff, he had a clear strategy. So his strategy, number one, was defining Herschel Walker, competence, character. I was at that first speech the day after The November election. And he said the words competence and character between those two words, probably a dozen times or more in one speech. So and he was consistent in that. But also they had a clear strategy. Yes, both candidates knew you win a runoff by turning out your base. But Herschel Walker did it in a one note way. He made the same speech to pretty much the same audience for you know that four-week runoff period. Raphael Warnock um, had a had had a standard stump speech, but he spoke to different audiences. Multiple times. I'm talking about he had events just for the Asian American Pacific Islander community, events just for black women, events just for black men, events just for unions and union workers, you know, and and that's just he went to so many college campuses, had so many events with young voters. And then that's not even going to the grassroots organization and the surrogate that spoke to Latino voters in the LGBTQ community, Dave Matthews to speak to even those (laughs) suburban white voters and swing voters. So Warnock in his strategy even though, yes, he was trying to turn out his base, it was much more comprehensive, much more deliberative, much more robust. The fact that he had campaign literature in Korean and Thai. And so, yes, we hear that Republicans say, well, we're doing outreach because we know we can get Latino voters. We know we can get some AAPI voters. We know we can get some Black voters. But you didn't see that at all in how Herschel Walker conducted his campaign, other than perhaps having a black person speak at his rally or having a Latino voter voter, or a Latino supporter pray in Spanish at his rally. But the rallies themselves did not change for any specific audience. And I think Warnock's strategy clearly paid off.
1: Um, Chase, do we have the Raphael Warnock sound available to us or uh, is that gone for right now? Just give me a quick uh, heads up on that. Okay. Um, the reason I asked for that, really, uh, Riley, is, is is it goes back to something that uh, Tia started uh, uh, talking about a moment ago. And that was talking about how character mattered in uh, this race. And, and you have to say, you know, a lot of this campaign, you'd have to say, I think, Riley, um, on our show, in news reporting, an awful lot of it focused on the negatives around Herschel Walker because it sucked up, it just sucked up so much oxygen. Because there were so many issues that kept coming up, um, so many, uh, so much baggage uh, that he carried around with him. And what that meant was there wasn't quite as much focus on how the the really terrific campaign that Warnock was running, which Tia just talked about. And when I say something about character and Warnock. I thought one of the most moving things he said last night, and it's something I think he said in his stump speeches, was uh, that when her mother was young, she picked somebody else's cotton and somebody else's tobacco. But yesterday, she contributed to the people who voted for her son for United States Senator. Um, and I do think that tells us something about the kind of person that Raphael Warnock is and the kind of background he comes out of. Riley?
2: Absolutely. And for those of us on the trail, we know that line very, very well. And it it hits really, really home. It hits home with the voters, especially in the South, especially for the Democratic diverse base, you know. And I think that it's interesting because – The negativity around Herschel Walker really, truly did suck up all the air in the room. And we saw Warnock have to lean into that because in the very early days of the election, he wouldn't talk about Herschel Walker at all. He wouldn't talk about the allegations against him. He wouldn't talk about the controversies. And in the end, that was his final message is that Herschel Walker was not fit to serve in the U.S. Senate or is not fit to serve in the U.S. Senate. And that is what he wanted to drive home, and that's what really drove home the point. Um, but well, you can't glaze over the fact that this is the first time a black senator has been elected to a full term in Georgia. That, that's absolutely huge, and I think that says a lot about his campaign and where the state's going forward.
1: Okay, so let's make a little tour of the state, uh, Renee. Um, of course, it, it is a given— that the collar counties around Atlanta turned out in huge numbers for Raphael Warnock, Fulton County, uh, DeKalb County, Cobb County, Gwinnett County, Cobb and Gwinnett, of course, which 10 years ago would have voted for a Republican uh, candidate in this race, probably even a Herschel Walker uh, in those days. Um, But let's talk about where uh, Warnock made some interesting gains in other major parts of the state. So, if you go down to Bibb County around Macon, Warnock actually down there increased his margin over Walker from 24 percent in the general election to over 25 percent in the runoff. In Muskogee, that's not a lot, but it was it was only small margins which won this contest. In Muskogee County, um, he was able to expand his margin by, four percentage points. That happened in Clark. It happened in Richmond. It happened in Rockdale. But at the same time, Herschel Walker was picking up same rural counties he won last month, but with smaller margins of victory in really big GOP strongholds like Paulding, Glynn, Tift, Thomas. Um, so it, it, it's when you look at a map of the state of Georgia right now, Beyond just those few counties that I mentioned, it is pretty astonishing to see how many rural parts of the state started moving blue, um, even though we have long just thought of them as pure red counties.
4: Yeah, well, I, there's a few things going on, I think. I mean, number one, obviously, there's the demographic change that, that we're, we're seeing, right? We're seeing it play out all throughout the country. We're seeing obviously play out throughout these even red, red counties in Georgia. Um I, I think, you know, when, when when Warnock said, I am Georgia in his speech, you know, I he you 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 felt that because he connects with so many different types of Georgians. He knows, he is Georgia in that respect. And I think that authenticity certainly has him surfing. He can go from, you know, rural to Metro Atlanta and really just understand exactly who his audience is because he walks and lives the talk there. Um, I I do think that it's interesting to point out how, uh, how Metro Atlanta, you know, I mean, the 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 kingdom that is expanding of metro atlanta is just getting bigger and bigger and it is swallowing up some of these you know reddish uh counties on the periphery and it's uh, you know the, the the future of what that what metro atlanta does in georgia politics is going to be very interesting um you know it, it used to be such that okay the the incremental leads of, of the 146 counties in Georgia, uh, you know, will come in and come in and it'd be very difficult to, to, you know, overtake that. But with Metro Atlanta, just, just booming and growing, it's, you know, it's, it's it's kind of astounding to take, to think about, uh, how you as a Republican deal with that.
1: Right. So Tia, uh, to expand on this kind of little tour, um, while Walker did win, Uh, Quite a few of the red rural counties that he won in uh, the general election, as I said a a couple of minutes ago, uh, uh, Warnock started doing better than he had in that general election in some of those counties. But then, Tia, you turn to Fulton County, for example, uh, (laughs) Warnock won 77 percent of the vote there. Not surprising, but more than he even won in the general. He increased his vote totals by 50,000 voters in Fulton County over what he had gotten there in the um, general election. And as I said, DeKalb, Gwinnett, Cobb, um, all overwhelmingly elected Raphael Warnock.
3: Right. I think that's, you know, one of the things that is Mm going to be a lesson learned, I think, from this runoff. Um, we won't be able to compare some of the data because the runoff window was so condensed. So some of the conventional wisdom, even about Election Day voting, right, because this Election Day voting broke a record because so many people weren't able to vote early because of the condensed early voting schedule. And so what I think, and this is my hypothesis, I guess, is that Raphael Warnock was able to do even better on Election Day, so to speak, than perhaps we would have predicted under a more normal scenario where more Democrats would have voted early. But overall, whether it was early voting or Election Day voting, he ran up the margins in in his solid counties. And, and, and that, to me, like, to do even better in a county like DeKalb, of the vote went to Warnock. And so when you do even better in these huge counties, there was no way for Herschel Walker to catch back up. I remember last night I started out at Herschel Walker's party. And so I, you know, got the writing on the wall. It was before the race had been called, but it was like time to go over to Warnock's party. And one of Herschel Walker's people stopped me and said, No, why are you leaving? There are more counties to vote. I said, sir, it's over because the counties left to vote. The Republican counties didn't have the votes there. Meanwhile, DeKalb County still had 50% of the vote left. And we knew that once those 100,000 votes were counted, 80,000 were going to go to Warnock. So just like the math was just like astounding in those big counties.
1: All right, let's do this. There's a lot more I'd like to talk about uh, with this panel, um, if they're not half asleep at this point already. And by the way, let me say how grateful I am for those of you who were up virtually all night as we were at Political Rewind for sticking with us today. And to you out there who are listening live, we're awfully happy you're with us as well. We'll take a break and be right back with more. We're back on uh, Political Rewind with uh, Donna Lowry, Riley Bunch, Renee Alegria, and Tia Mitchell. Um, Donna, I was just frantically looking for the voter page, the Secretary of State's voter page, during the break, and I wasn't able to pull it up fast enough. One of the things that um, was mentioned on the show this morning was that although Herschel Walker won Forsyth County, Uh, He won it by, uh, Democrats made enormous inroads. Raphael Warnock actually did far better in Forsyth than Democrats had done uh, traditionally up there. And I can't find the numbers right this second. But of course, just in general, that in itself is staggering because we know the history of Forsyth County in Georgia. Donna, it's what was known as a sundown county. If you were African-American, you did not want to be out on the streets or around the county after uh, dark. It has a long... Uh, uh, unfortunate history of racism, and if even Forsyth is starting to turn around, then you know how the metro area uh, uh, purpling is extending outward from the city of Atlanta.
0: Yeah, and I know that the demographics are changing in Forsyth County. They're not changing dramatically, but that is another area. If you've been up to Forsyth County lately, you'll see um, a more diverse area than you saw in the past. But I think for uh, part of this runoff picture is that for the, some of the people who voted st- for the statewide offices, which we know went Republican except for the Senate race, that just having this race to focus on let them see a little bit more of what the race was all about, who, who the candidates were. And I think that made a big difference in all of this in terms of people who normally always vote Republican. Just really saying, OK, who do I who do I really want in Washington representing me for the next six years? And, and I think that made a difference.
1: OK, so, Tia, um, we look at what happened up until yesterday, last night, when the race was called for Raphael Warnock. Um, I think there are other ways that we ought to assess what happened and what might be happening moving forward. So with that in mind, let me start with this. We know that um, Herschel Walker was the only Republican on the statewide ballot on election day who lost his race. Every other Republican in the constitutional offices won. Um, Walker underperformed Brian Kemp himself by 200,000-plus votes, and there were others on the statewide ballot, Republicans, who did even better than uh, Kemp. So, obviously, the question that has to be asked is, to what extent was the fact that it was Donald Trump who not just supported Herschel Walker, but pushed him into the race, anointed him, if it were not for that, if a better candidate had been elected, if a Gary Black, for instance, who was in the primary against Walker, had been the nominee, no matter what a great campaign Raphael Warnock might have run, it is quite likely that we'd have a Republican in the U.S. Senate right now, yes?
3: You know, I, I waver on that. I get the wisdom, like, you know, Republicans swept every other office. What is the assumption that people would have crossed over to support Raphael Warnock if there were a less controversial candidate on the ballot? I do understand that, but I also feel like Herschel Walker had high name recognition, higher than all the other Republicans and I feel like I don't necessarily know if on the general election I don't know, I I guess I just kind of I don't know if I agree with that premise because you know, Raphael Warnock still had the power of incumbency that all the other Democrats in the statewide slate didn't have and I don't know if toe to toe with an unnamed Republican who might not have the controversies, but he they also wouldn't have had the name recognition that some of the other Republicans on the ticket used to their advantage to win their races. So, but I also I, I, get that Herschel Walker's many downsides also brought him down. So I don't know. Just like, just in general, the the Republican slate in this Senate race was just weak for different reasons, even the other
1: candidates. I, I love the fact. Thank you for letting us actually hear you thinking that through instead of just trying to come out with some wise remark. Riley, what's what's your sense? I, I do understand why Tia's uh, conflicted about that. Raphael Warnock, again, ran a terrific race. He positioned himself more to the center. He talked about working in bipartisan ways with people like Ted Cruz. Um, Even Tommy Tuberville, Uh, Cruz cringed when uh, Warnock said he worked with him on some issues. Um, So I get all of the good things about Raphael Warnock. I still can't help but wonder, though, if Trump hadn't shoved Herschel Walker into this race, let's face it, Riley, there was never a sense that Herschel Walker was prepared to be a candidate for the United States Senate.
2: Well, I think it goes back to, you know, a comment that I mentioned earlier about just quality of candidates. You know, this can't be the criteria. This Trump endorsement kind of have this celebrity status. It can't be the criteria because it's not working. Will Republicans really kind of open their eyes to this and make long-term change? I'm not so sure, um, right? So I think that there's a lot of things at play, um, but Herschel Walker's just – overall past his record his politics you know it was working against his campaign team there was people on his cam- t- campaign staff last night there was like you know what we did what we could with what we had you know so it's a big question and it'll be interesting to see if the party kind of takes it to heart moving forward
1: well and data that's one of the reasons i bring that up because one of the questions moving forward out of this election is uh given all the races that trump lost Uh, His hold on the party still, we we should never pretend that he still doesn't have a pretty firm grip on the party. But the question is whether this race particularly is uh, going to start to make people think twice uh, in the Republican Party about sticking so close to Donald Trump.
0: I think you're starting to hear that. I think yesterday we heard, last night we heard so many um, Republicans start talking about how there was a need to change the party, um, change the focus, look at different things. Lieutenant Governor uh, Jeff Duncan was among them, talking about just basically um, looking at the way things were um, developed, d- d- developed for for this particular race um, and, and across the country. I mean, this runoff. I, I mean, the the uh, this midterm election should have been such a victory for Republicans. It's what everybody expected, and yet they did not get it. So they've gotta go back to the drawing board. And I think one of the things they really gotta look at is what factor Trump Trump will have in all of this. And I think we're gonna hear a lot about that going forward. I think there's still this divide, but there's still people who are recognizing that the, the Trump factor isn't as crucial and, and moving a candidate along as they thought it was
4: renee i you know I actually think it started to happen earlier uh than just last night. I think you know i it, what what comes to mind is that the you know the, that middle of the week january sixth hearings right, where we started to Watch testimony of individuals that worked with him in the White House, and just it started to come to life in a different way what exactly went down that day. You started to hear rumblings and read rumblings from mostly moderate Republicans that were just like, wow, that's, you know, that's a a little much, to paraphrase. Um, Going into the midterms then, you know, obviously he backed who he backed. They didn't perform well, you know. With the runoff post midterms, it was even more so, OK, that didn't work out. This is his last chance. And, you know, listening to people talk about uh, Warnock's loss as from final hurrah as the heart of the Republican, current Republican Party uh, is, is a very interesting dynamic. Uh, you know, there are folks who are really writing him off. I mean, you, you, you watch Pence talk about what he talks about when Trump comes up and he's really moved on, you know, from all things Trump, Trump backing. It's it's absolutely put, you know, a, a, a nail into the the Republican Party in that it's split. Right. Um, so, it, it, you know, a lot of folks are starting to already say, well, he'll come back. He always comes back. What happens? Uh, we'll see. Right. But it's definitely, you know, the the people are saying things in the Republican Party that they would never have dared say a year ago, six months ago, three months ago. And that's a very interesting dynamic. All right. So,
1: Riley, let's move on to another uh, outcome of this runoff election. Um, Lisa Lehrer uh, for The New York Times uh, posted a column. Uh, I, on the Times website, or it's in the newspaper, I guess, today as well, um, reacting to the Warnock victory. And I'm going to read you the first couple graphs, and then we can all talk about it. Uh, she says, for decades, Florida and Ohio reigned supreme over presidential politics. The two states relished their role crowning presidents and spawning political cliches. Industrial Cleveland faced off against white-collar Cincinnati the Midwestern snowbirds of the villages against the Puerto Rican diaspora of the Orlando suburbs. But the Georgia runoff, the final note of the 2022 midterm elections, may have said goodbye to all that. The Marietta Moms are in charge now. And what her point is, she she contends there are now six states through which the Democratic presidential, well, no, the entire presidential campaign will run in 24. Uh, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Wow, that's really interesting to contemplate, Riley.
2: I mean, it's funny because we're all sitting here um, after runoff election night, so tired, and we're like, "Oh, thank goodness it's over! So, you know, we we've made it. We made it." That's not the case. I don't think for us going forward in Georgia anymore. You know, the the Marietta moms that made me chuckle, but it really does underscore how Georgia is such. Um, uh, a picture almost of the state and where Democrats want to go moving forward. I I think I spoke about this on the last show, but talking about how there was frustration after the statewide Democratic losses with Stacey Abrams and the statewide Mm -hmm. state, but now is the time for Democrats to pour their resources into the state. You know, we're possibly having the Democratic convention and moving forward in the primary. And it's, it's Georgia's not going anywhere, so we're, we're going to have to um, get over our tiredness <laughs> and keep, keep working.
1: <laughs> Tia, there was a time when a Washington reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution would just be, oh, another one of those many people running around on the Hill reporting on their local delegation. Uh, but you have already been and are going to continue to be one of the most popular reporters on the Hill <laughs> thanks to your working for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
3: Yeah, and it's just Georgia is like become the center of action and it's not just this race. It's not just well, I mean, I guess it is the the way we Georgia elected Joe Biden, the way Georgia flipped control of the Senate, the way Georgia now gave the Senate 51 votes for Democrats and now Georgia's in conversation to be an early primary state. It's in the conversation to be the host of the Democratic National Convention, which I think, you know, Georgia's probably if I don't know this for sure, but my guess is Georgia's one of the remaining two. Um, And so we should know pretty soon um, if, if Georgia wins. But. Georgia is such a part of the conversation in ways that I know I didn't imagine when I first came to the AJC just five years ago. Um, But it's really exciting to be a journalist covering Georgia politics.
1: Um, All right, Donna, so let's put aside, let's have a note of caution here. There is no question (laughs) that the the victory of Raphael Warnock, the victory of John Ossoff, and for his first two years, Warnock turning the Senate blue, that Joe Biden's victory here, all of that says that Georgia is, has arrived as a national player in, in a swing and as a swing state in that respect. But Donna, this state is continuing to be controlled by Republicans. The entire uh, uh, slate of constitutional officers, the statewide uh, offices are held by Republicans. The legislature is still controlled by Republicans. Our congressional delegation, thanks to the drawing of the kinds of maps they draw, uh, is a, a, a Republican delegation primarily. So what's going to be interesting to watch is the tension between the growing uh, influence of Democrats with Raphael Warnock at the head of all of that and Republicans' efforts to make sure they remain in control headed by another brand new newly minted national figure in the Republican party, Brian Kemp.
0: Absolutely. I think it is important. I mean, this is the day after the election. Warnock has won, you know, the Democrats can feel happy, but I think it's important to recognize that this is still um, a heavily Republican state in terms of leadership. And I think it's more pink than actual purple. I think it's evolving maybe purple, but I don't think we can call it a purple state at this point. I think we've got we have definitely has to have to recognize um, that the legislature is uh, looking at all of this too, and we've got the session coming up in uh, just a few more weeks. We have the some of the legislative leaders are getting together tomorrow to announce their legislative agenda at the Capitol, uh, and I'm sure they will have you know there is, you know they're talking about very very conservative moves that they're going to go for in this legislative session they're still in control and so we there will be um a different a different legislature because it's very diverse coming up so the, the democrats have those kind of gains in terms of it looking more um their party in the legislature looking more like the state but they, the republicans are in control and so we have, we will see a lot of that happening uh, in the coming weeks, and people need to remember that.
3: Tia? I just wanted to make a comment a little bit about those Republican wins in those statewide offices, because I think it's something for us to keep in mind. I know we're already talking about 2024 and now 2026, because, you know, Kemp is <laughs> going to be term-limited, Um, Raffensperger is going to be term limited. And one of the things that, you know, yes, Kemp did great, uh, but he also had the power of incumbency. It's hard to unseat an incumbent, especially a popular Republican incumbent in a state like Georgia. But what we saw four years ago is that Stacey Abrams came really, really close. So Democrats this year on the slate had a candidate quality issue, or I'll say they had a they had an issue with their slate coming across cohesive, you know that, and I I'm trying to say it carefully, um, and I and that's hard because just like we saw Republicans challenged because perhaps the person they felt was most electable wasn't who the voters chose after the primary, we saw that with Democrats, and again. I think that's something the Democratic Party of Georgia is going to be really thoughtful about, because particularly for the races where the incumbent is term limited, there could be opportunities if they get the right person nominated and if their slate overall is strong to help um, pull voters along.
1: All right, I got to get to the final break of the show. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Okay, Renee Alegria, CEO of Mundo. Now, one final note on what it means to, uh, for Raphael Warnock to have won the Senate seat. Uh, we know that the, seat, the Senate was already going to be in Democratic control. It was 50-50. Now it's 51-50. Let's listen to what Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says about that, and then, Renee, I'll ask you to weigh in. They say all good things come to those who wait, and this outcome is absolutely worth the wait. After one year... 10 months and 17 days of the longest 50-50 Senate in history, 51, yeah. a slim majority. That is great, and we are so happy about it. And it's great, Renee, because under a 50-50 Senate, there's a power-sharing agreement. The committees are equal, um, but no, and, and there's also that issue with uh, Democrats like a Joe Manchin uh, and a Christian cinema sometimes don't want to go along with the, a, a democratic agenda. So this is bigger than it might appear, just with one additional Democrat in the Senate.
4: Yeah, it, it it really is. I mean, we can go into yes, taking some of the the mojo out of Cinema Mansion, you know, and their tag team show that they that they do uh, when, when it's time to for the Democrats to depend on their votes. We could go into you know the committee leaderships that now Democrats uh, certainly have sway in without needing Republican approvals. But I think I think overall the bigger picture is you know it's it's another emphasis of how poorly the Republicans did during the midterm. This was the period of no, you don't. And I think with that uh, there there is a almost a a people's mandate for what Biden is going to do in his next two years in office and how the Senate is going to support that. I also think that this will affect uh, members of the House, the more moderate Republicans in the House. What are they going to do, you know? And how the House is going to conduct itself. So uh, that's, uh, it it certainly, again, is a much larger piece of the pie.
1: Uh, Tia, let me get a quick reaction uh, uh, from you about uh, this. To
3: get, to ask me again?
1: Well, you've now got 51 Democrats in the Senate. It's only one additional Democrat, but it does make a difference in terms of the power Democrats will have in committees and getting the votes they need for some of their legislation.
3: Yeah, like, okay, so here's uh, um, Representative Raskin's wife, Lisa. Um, she was nominated to the Federal Reserve. And I'm sorry, Sarah Bloom Raskin was nominated to the Federal Reserve. Republicans decided she was too liberal. They refused to show up to the committee which means it didn't have a quorum, which meant not, not, not only was Sarah Bloom Raskin's appointment held up in committee, but all the other appointments to the Federal Reserve were held up in committee, including um, a lady from Georgia who would have, who be, now is the first Black woman on the Federal Reserve. And so that's an example of like how that 50-50 sharing um really Republicans were able to use their power and hold up appointments that they felt strongly about so if Democrats had 51 then they Sarah Bloom Raskin would be on the Federal Reserve today instead yeah. she had to withdraw and bow out so that the other nominees could even move forward
1: All right. So uh, thank you for that. By the way, in uh, two years, it's Democrats who will have the most seats in the Senate to defend. So um, we'll watch how that unfolds. But before we leave, Donna, I really want to turn to a different subject, because after all, the midterm election is over, which means the next big political event on the horizon is the legislature. You'll be getting set as the host of lawmakers. You'll be involved in lawmakers as well, Riley. And Donna, the reason I turn to you on this is because I think you've done now the only interview— with David Ralston's widow, Cherie Ralston, who has decided she will run for his seat in Blue Ridge in the house. That, that of course, just so we're clear on this to all of our listeners, not the job of speaker, but to be the representative in the district that he once represented.
0: Yeah, that's right. I was there for her qualifying. I did. I wouldn't say that I didn't have the only interview, but I did get a chance to talk to her. And she, um, she has very little to say right now about anything, but she is committed to this, to, uh, this seat and committed to continuing some of the policies that he had, uh, especially when it comes to mental health, which he always talked about her, her, um, her force behind his interest in the big massive ten, um, HB 1013, the mental health bill for Georgia, the mental health parity bill. So I think that um, it'll be an interesting race. I think she has um, she she feels committed to this, and certainly we've seen widows um, carry on in the positions that they're when they've lost their husbands who have been in in powerful positions. So I think there's a real commitment for on her um, side. Uh, right now, one other candidate, he's kind of um, he's got some some issues. Um, Brian K. Pritchard has some issues that. Um, May, um, may color that race a little bit up in the Blue Ridge area.
1: Uh, there's a, the, the, your article, uh, interview with her, is on our website at gpb.org. One of the things I loved is um, you included in that article a, a quote from David Ralston when you talked to him for lawmakers last spring. He said, we've talked about mental health issues for a long, long time, She, meaning uh, Cherie, his wife, challenged me one day and said, why can't you all do something without worrying about the next election? And Ralston said, yeah, we should do that. Riley, one quick other note on the legislature. You're going to be down there a lot. Two new leaders, a new speaker on the House side, a new lieutenant governor on the Senate side. Um, We don't know exactly how all that is going to influence the kind of session it will be.
2: Well, it's definitely a shakeup um, with both the new leaders in each of the chambers. We have a, a diverse group of legislators coming in. We have the new Hispanic and AAPI caucuses. It's going to be a lot going on, and we'll see how it all plays out down there. I'm excited.
1: Renee, that is interesting. Um, there are not a lot of Hispanic legislators, but the fact that they have come together to create a caucus, as you've said on the show any number of times— the need for Hispanics to try to muscle up to increase their political power uh, is is important to the community, and now is the time to be doing it.
4: Yeah, and, and it's happening. I mean, the fact that we have a Latino caucus, you know, is is a is an incredible thing. What that does, though, is that it influences uh, how Latino outreach uh, for those incumbents and those running for office. Uh, engage with us. And that's a, that's a, that's a big thing. That's a, you know, that matters greatly as our we're about 1.1 million Latinos now in the state of Georgia and growing and growing, um, primarily in states that are, excuse me, in, in counties in the north. Uh, and, and with that, you know, it's going to be just a, another, a different dialogue of what Georgians are used to. And that's important. Our
1: Rene Alegria gets the final word in today's Political Rewind. Renee Riley Bunch, Tia Mitchell, uh, Donna Lowry, thank you all for giving us time on a very, very long day for everybody. I hope some of you get some rest uh, tonight. Um, We'll be back again, of course, tomorrow with a brand new show. Mary Margaret Oliver will be here. Leo Smith's going to join us. Kevin Riley and Stephen Fowler uh, will be talking about the election, what we've learned in uh, the day since today, and uh, a lot more. That's tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Niga, Take care. Stay healthy. Bye, everybody.